Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hey, y'all. I'm Zach Glazer. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 334 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Kelly is talking with therapist Sherry Walling about what it looks like to carry your client's trauma. Today's podcast is brought to you by DK Global, Rankings.io, Text Expander, and Postali. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned and we'll tell you more about them later on. What's your why? What are your personal goals? To work in the air conditioning. I, I used to build athletic fields when I was younger, as, as soon as I got out of, of college. And I was in the middle of a mountain in East Tennessee, driving a tractor, sweating like crazy. And I decided that I, I wanted to work in the air conditioning and not pick up a rake anymore. So I went to law school. I love that. When I was in high school, my dad required me to go to his office and file warranty claims for his car dealership, which at the time, so imagine just a whole room full of file cabinets. It's kind of funny now in the technology world, right? This sounds funny, but I used to get these horrible paper cuts and I hated filing and I would be like, this is why I'm going to college. I don't want to have to file. <laughs> like, so I guess maybe our message today is if you have children, make them do hard things. <laughs> right, right. That's how my parents did it. But I, I think those are the what I don't want to do. Yes. And true. a lot of us have our what I don't want to do. And I think this is our, our book is about what what do you want to do? What's the positive things? What do you want to get out of this? Yeah. What do you want your life to look like? Like, I love asking people, what would a typical ideal day look like? Like, would you get up? Would you exercise? Maybe meditate or do some kind of or would you write or read? And then how much time would you spend at your office doing your work day? And then what would the evenings look like? I remember when I was practicing law at a big law firm at the time, my spouse was as well. And I would say, what do people who get off at five o'clock do? Like, I don't understand. I was like, what happens? They have so much time. Like that was always mm -hmm. such a like weird mystery to me. Now I can say like, I get off at five o'clock, like my work day ends and I have the early evenings to do things. I go out and piddle in my garden or I cook dinner and or I take walks. And so what if you got to design your ideal day, what kinds of things would you slot in and what would be important to you? Right. And I, I think that's extremely important here for me. I I like being remote. It's one of the reasons I work at Lawyerist is I like being able to travel pretty much anywhere that I have Internet connection and being able to work from there. I know my father, while I was growing up, he wanted to make sure that he made it to all of our soccer games. He coached me throughout my entire life, and he wanted to make sure he made it to every one of our games and practices. And so he designed his law practice in a way where he could do that. Yeah, I love that. And I've coached people who have special needs children and they need a lot of flexibility or people who are like, hey, I want to spend half the year living in Costa Rica. What would that look mm -hmm. like? And so that's the kind of fun thing here. If you're listening to this and you're like, I don't even know where I would start. Go to a beautiful place. Go to a place that inspires you and give yourself a little bit of permission to dream. 
Like, what would it look like? And here's the good news. Once you're clear on that and what you want your ideal life to look like, you can create a business that gets you there, that allows you to live that life. It is possible. It may not happen overnight. It's not going to happen in year one. But one of our lab alumni, um, I'm still friends with him on Facebook, he's now truly the CEO of his business. He doesn't touch legal files anymore. And all of the pictures I see on Facebook, like he just spent a week hiking in the mountains in California. He's out fishing every day. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. the nature pictures that come in are amazing, but he has designed his business to allow him to do that. And so it is possible. It will take hard work, but why not get started with it and start being intentional about what it is that you want to create? And I think that's exactly right. The intentionality of it. And you could want to be in the trenches fighting for the little guy all day, every day. That's not what I want to do, but if that's what you want to do, design your practice to do that. I love it. So now we have my conversation with Alex from DK Global and then Kelly's conversation with Sherry. Hey, y'all. It's Zach, the legal tech advisor here at Lawyerist. And today I am joined by Alex Deaconson from DK Global. Now, for those of you who don't know, DK Global provides animated demonstratives for presentation and trial. So Alex and I are talking about what use those can be and how to enhance your evidence. Alex, thanks for joining me today. Hey, happy to be here, Zach. Thanks for having us on. Of course. The first thing that this makes me think of is the importance of presentation at trial, the importance of just making yourself look professional from your perspective, what value do these these animated demonstratives have in litigation? Well, I think it brings a huge value. And I agree with you. I think in the traditional sense, when you hear presentation, you hear animation or demonstrative exhibits, you automatically uh, correlate that to trial presentation. I need this because I'm in front of a jury, because I'm in front of a judge, because I need to mm-hmm. prove my case to this audience of people. And What we have found, and in my 12 years here, is that building the presentation and utilizing it, pre-suit, mediation, demand, settlement, conference, like all the way through the process, including in depositions, is extremely valuable. And the way I look at it is this, is let's say we have a car accident and the dynamics of how it happened, who's at fault, where the liability lies, is somewhat of a mystery. And we need to go in and find the truth of that. You hire your biomechanical expert, you hire an accident reconstruction Mm -hmm. expert, in a lot of cases, a human factors expert, and you have them bringing all of this data to life, going to the scene. Why wouldn't you create a presentation that encompasses and visually presents all of that? It's like writing the script for a movie and not actually making the movie. You want something on screen that ties all of their opinions and, and everything that they've analyzed together in a visual presentation. So very valuable when it comes to just getting the facts of your case and the opinions and putting it all into an all-encompassing presentation that anyone can view and then understand the dynamics of your case. For kind of old school or attorneys that may not think of presenting things in a digital way, presenting things, you know, animated or whatever, we're all doing demonstrative presentations. We're already drawing things on whiteboards. And I I know I have drawn so many things on white easels and then ripped the sheet of paper off and then moved to the next thing. 
And to me, this is a next step, a better way of, of presenting this type of stuff. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think you really have to understand your audience and your venue. There are mm-hmm. absolutely times where we don't want to go full force with a very technical, flashy 3D animation, but maybe something more simple where we're communicating it through that whiteboard type of demonstrative exhibit. Maybe it's something that accompanies you drawing on the whiteboard because Mm -hmm. when you're interacting with your exhibits, the jury is paying attention to that. Your viewer is paying attention to that. So yeah, it's the next level of that. And I think they play hand in hand, really. Right. And so again, we're not talking about having something on TV, turning the lights down and, and everybody just watching this, this film or something. We're talking about making the a presentation that the attorney would be doing anyway into something more fulfilling. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's something that, again, it's just a communication tool. When you're speaking with somebody in person or having a conversation, our subconscious is looking at the eyebrows, you're looking at their facial expression, you're using mm-hmm. your hands. There's a lot of forms of visual communication and there's all kinds of statistics out there about visual versus audio learning and visual and audio learning. But yeah, it's not like when you were in grade school, I don't know, when I was in grade school and they rolled in the TV cart and turned off all the lights, it was going to be a good class period, but it doesn't have to be as formal as that. It could be something to where it is just an addition to the point that you're making in a conversation, because really you're having a conversation with your jury and you're explaining facts to them. Your expert is having a conversation with the jury. You want to get away from it being a lecture. Because lectures are known to, you know, put people to sleep. And I I was presenting and I heard a funny quote from a judge and it said that 69% of juries that were pooled have admitted to falling asleep during a jury trial. And the judge responded with, I usually don't wake them because I leave it up to the lawyer because it is the lawyer who put them to sleep in the first place. And I just thought that was funny because it's so true. You want to have something that engages who you're talking to. Right, right. That, that's a very interesting point. And I think that as lawyers, we've all run into that, knowing that we're we're kind of droning on and more importantly, not getting our, our point across, no matter how good our argument is. And I, I kind of want to go back to something we had said earlier, which is that you don't necessarily have to have this just at trial. Yeah. Given given that that we've got this remote world and we're starting to do virtual hearings and virtual negotiations, have you guys seen an uptick or seen an entry into that area of the litigation? Absolutely. And and even before the pandemic and we went into, or everyone, I should say, was forced into this remote world, we were always major advocates of start early because it, let's say you have a deposition coming up and you're bringing demonstratives to that deposition and they are finished animations. That's a preview of what the jury is going to see. Opposing counsel is going to see how prepared you are. They're going to get a preview of how serious the, you're taking the case and the investment that you're putting into it. So it just, it puts it on a different level. And, and not only that, but a presentation, let's say you're preparing a visual presentation, you're working with a team, you're working with experts, it kind of holds you to an accountability factor of getting that product finished. And in that process, 
you are getting the, the points of what that presentation is going to cover in a different way than if you were just taking depots and studying. You're so familiar with the presentation, it gives you a confidence edge coming in, knowing what you have, what it's going to look like, and, and how powerful it's going to be. So when the pandemic happened in, in March of last year, we basically just pivoted and focused all our efforts to, okay, we already do demand packages. We already do mediation presentations. We already size things up for depots and encourage lawyers to get their demonstrative exhibits and animations and everything dialed in for deposition. So let's just pivot and heavily focus on that. While the courts are delayed and closed down, utilize this time to create these presentations that will separate you from the stack of emails or paperwork or demands that are coming in to the other side. Right. So you know, we, we chose to pivot and just highly focus on something that we've already been doing. Well, and that's a good point. We spend a lot of our effort as attorneys trying to separate ourselves from the rest of that stack on the other attorney's yeah. desk. And this is certainly a good way to do it. Alex, I, I really appreciate you talking to me about this today. And if people want to know more about demonstrative animations and all things that we've talked about today, they can go to dkglobal.net forward slash services. So again, th thanks for being with me, and we'll see you next time, Alex. Absolutely. Thanks for having us, Zach. We look forward to speaking with you again. Before we get started with today's topic, I just want to share that what we are going to talk about, mental health and secondhand trauma is so important to me. It is my passion, so much so that I am actually making it my career. I'm currently halfway through a master's in clinical psychology to become a licensed therapist. And so you might be hearing more from me over the next year, just talking about how lawyers can take better care of their mental health. So now that we have that out of the way, I would love to introduce you all to Dr. Sherry Walling. She's been with us on the Lawyerist podcast a couple of times before, but you may all know her as the expert on entrepreneurial psychology, host of the Zen Founder podcast, and author of The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. Additionally, Sherry is going to have a new book coming out next spring, so you will want to stay tuned for that by following her on Twitter and getting on her email list at SherryWalling.com. I will also say that I am so lucky to call this incredible woman my friend as well. So Dr. Sherry Walling, it's so good to have you here. Thanks so much, Kelly. Always good to talk with you, but really fun to be back on the Lawyers Podcast as well. Yes. So let's get into it. I would love it if you would introduce from your perspective, what is secondhand trauma and or sometimes it's also called compassion fatigue. And then one other title is also vicarious trauma. This kind of framing of this conversation has to do with when we in the course of our work are exposed to traumatic experiences in other people's lives, but we begin to take on some of the kind of problematic responses to trauma because we're so affected by the things that have happened to them. I want to maybe start by pointing out that within our current conceptualization of post-traumatic stress disorder, you can get PTSD by having something happen to you, by witnessing something, or by hearing about it. So built into 
our framing of traumatic reactions in the most kind of technical symptom oriented way is this sense that we as humans are impacted, sometimes deeply impacted by the stories that we hear, the things that we witness, the things that we're exposed to in the lives of others. Yes. And the witnessing, the hearing, that I think is is something that's a new framework around what PTSD is or how we can experience it. And I, I think about this as... When you hear that something happened to someone and then you start avoiding doing something or you notice that you have kind of a visceral reaction to someone riding their bike down the road because you heard about someone or had a client who had a severe injury or accident due to taking that action. It's just really interesting how we're learning so much more about how we experience or react to trauma. And I think this awareness that we're impacted by things that we don't directly experience has been part of our understanding of trauma for quite some time, but we're starting to get just more information about why that is and what it looks like. And you're absolutely right that avoiding is a huge component of a trauma reaction. We avoid things that potentially put us at risk for bad experiences. We avoid things that remind us of these horrible stories that we've heard. But there's some other components too that are worth kind of pointing out for your listeners. But another piece of trauma is a sense of intrusive thoughts or intrusive thinking about, I I used the word memory a moment ago, but it's the sense in which A traumatic movie is playing in our minds all the time, and it starts to play against our will. That's the intrusive part. So we're thinking about things that are really upsetting, and we feel like we don't really have control over those thoughts. So then avoidance is reasonable. Like We want to avoid anything that would potentially trigger those memories, thoughts, feelings. And with trauma also comes a a set of changes in the way that we see the world. So negative thoughts, negative feelings about ourselves, negative perspective of the future. We used to have a criteria in the PTSD diagnosis that was called a sense of foreshortened future. So it's this lack of the ability to imagine positive things because you're so living in this intrusive experience of the negative things. And then finally, part of our sort of the fourth component that goes into problematic reactions to trauma is changes in physical and emotional reactions. So this can be the sense of hyperarousal or hypervigilance, your body never feeling like it can rest, that everything is on guard. It's keyed up to nine out of 10 all the time. And there's a sense of not being able to concentrate, not being able to settle in your mind. We also see lots of trouble sleeping, lots of distraction. And of course, this feels really distressing to us as humans. And so it's often accompanied by irritability, anger, these negative emotions, because we are really without a foundation of calm, either in our minds or in our bodies. Wow. Yeah. Oh, this, I, that is such an, a great breakdown. And I'm so glad to have you here to talk about with all of your experience about how this shows up for people. And I'm wondering how does this differ from burnout? Because we've talked about burnout on the podcast before and way in depth. And I think that really hit home for a lot of people. But is secondhand trauma, compassion fatigue, uh, vicarious trauma, is that the same thing as burnout? 
it isn't the same thing, although they're cousins. They can co-occur. They can exist at the same time. Or lots of trauma exposure can also be a driver of burnout. But it looks and feels a little bit different. So when we're talking about burnout, we're talking about physical and emotional exhaustion. We're talking about a sense of cynicism and withdrawal. And we're talking about the third kind of cluster of reactions is a sense in which we see our work with a negative filter. So we don't feel like we can be effective or productive. So burnout in a really shorthand, not super scientific way of thinking about it, burnout is like an emptying of energy. Everything's sort of slowing down. It's exhaustion. It's like the gas tank is on empty and you're just sort of coasting along. Vicarious trauma is a, is a more awake. It's more alert. It's more uncomfortable. It's more anxious. So it feels a little bit different in your body and it looks a little bit different out in the world. Got it. Thank you for that distinction. And I think one of the things that I just want to share that it was really important to me and who gets this, how does this happen before we get too much further in, is that I saw that this is common in social workers, therapists, lawyers, doctors, nurses, and teachers. And so a lot of people in kind of all in the helper field experience this potentially. Yeah, this is absolutely a phenomenon among helpers, among the people who hold the stories of others and have some obligation to help react to those stories in a helpful way. Yeah. And the reason why I brought this topic up that I wanted to talk with you about it is that as the sort of gatekeeper of our lab coaching community program, I am seeing and talking with lawyers who are coming to us and saying, okay, I'm burnt out or I'm overwhelmed. I need help. And I went, huh, I think there's something deeper going on here. I don't know that it's just necessarily a factor of you need systems and processes in place. I think it's also that there's a mental health reason. That was why this topic just felt really important to me. I think it's extraordinarily important, Kelly. I think we expect lawyers to be very strong and very smart and that we forget what it does to someone when you're just hearing about somebody's worst day or worst experience over and over and over. And when really you're a problem receptacle, like all you hold are problems. Nobody's coming to you to litigate something where something wonderful happened. I think it's easy, even as professionals, for us to lose a sense of our own humanness and to see like there's work to be done. I have a job to do. My role is to hear these stories and bring about some outcome. And so the the humanizing nature of this conversation, I, I hope lands with people because you're not a machine, no matter how smart and how competent, how good you are at your job, you are a human heart and a human soul, and you're carrying a lot of pain with you in the context of your work. Yeah. You can't always out contract or negotiate out of your feelings. And best not to. <laughs> I mean, best not for that to be the goal. <laughs> 100% agreed. So I'd love to talk about some of the signs. How do people know that they're experiencing this? I think quite simply, it does look a lot like PTSD. I'd see some of the early signs are irritability, not being able to sleep and having that case or that story just play kind of over and over in your mind. 
And I want to acknowledge that sometimes the things that bother us are not the things that we expect. So just a story from my own professional life, I did a lot of my work and training within the VA system within California. So working a lot with combat-related trauma, and I heard horrible stories, lots of dead people, sexual assaults, like lots of things. But the time that I've struggled most with vicarious trauma was actually in a case that I was working with in a brain injury facility where a woman fell off a ladder. That was it. She fell off a ladder. And she had a pretty significant brain injury as a result of this fall. And I couldn't quite get it out of my head. I worried about it. I worried about my husband on a ladder. Like it really landed with me in a way that I experienced more fear and avoidance about things in my life than I had before. But it wasn't like the grisly trauma stories that I was hearing in the in the other parts of my work. So I guess I just want to point that out because again, sometimes we have a filter or we have a set of expectations about what is traumatic for us. And often that's not exactly the recipe. Sometimes it's the really mundane things that are easy to happen in our lives that can wreak some havoc uh, within us. Wow. I think that really will probably ring home for a lot of our listeners, especially when I consider some of the stories I've heard about why people went into law in the first place, that maybe uh, their parents went through a terrible, messy, ugly divorce, and they were like, I'm going to do this right. I'm always going to, I'm going to step in and help people have amicable divorces. And so then you're operating from that place of sort of trauma or what you've experienced and having that inform the way you work with clients in the future. Big stuff. Yeah. One thing that might be helpful for listeners to think about is there's a, a book called Shattered Assumptions by a psychologist named Ronnie Janoff Bullman. And I think it's a really helpful framework for understanding how this happens inside of us, which is basically this assumption that all of us walk around with some default scripts, like generally good things happen to good people, bad folks get in the end, that we as individuals are generally worthy of good things happening to us, and that the world is generally a good place, right? There's some like built-in really basic Justice 101 things that most of us operate from until we experience or bump up against traumatic events where the rules don't, the rules aren't followed, where bad, terrible things happen to good people, where the world can seem scary, where the world seems unpredictable. Those are the kinds of little shifts that are happening inside of us that can move us away from a place of comfort and confidence and certainty about how things work and our role in the world and can lead us to a place of, of feeling out of control and afraid. So I think it's helpful to keep track of our basic assumptions, our basic scripts, and how they're shifting in response to the things that we see. Thank you. So before we dive into a couple of the other signs, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll keep talking about signs and symptoms of secondhand trauma. Support for today's broadcast comes from Postali. Building the next powerhouse law firm takes hard work and an entrepreneurial spirit. But some skills escape even the savviest of attorneys. To reach new heights in your legal practice, you need a genuine marketing partner, one that tells you where you are now 
and where your firm could go. Postali works with law firms nationwide, and their trademarked marketing fiduciary services sets them apart from every other vendor that's cold calling or flooding your inbox. Whether it's informal guidance about things you can do today or a big-picture approach to law firm expansion, Postali is perfect for business-minded attorneys with an eye on the future. No matter where you are in your journey, Postali is the full-service, strategic marketing partner that grows with your firm. To learn more about the services Postali offers, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist and reach out for a free consultation. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, a search engine optimization agency working exclusively for personal injury law firms. Simply put, Rankings.io helps personal injury law firms dominate first page rankings. You'll never have to chase them for an update or hunt them down for an answer. Your clients expect you to be accessible and Rankings will meet that standard for communication and transparency. You'll have a full team of SEO specialists fighting to put you at the top of the Google search results. Personal injury lawyer SEO is all they do, so all of their processes, playbooks, and people are completely focused on generating qualified cases for your firm. Best of all, you'll be one of an elite few. Delivering exceptional service and results requires focus, so Rankings.io carefully vets clients before accepting them. They're an ideal fit for growth-oriented personal injury law firms. To see if you're a fit, visit rankings.io forward slash lawyerist to get started. And from Text Expander. Support for today's broadcast comes from Text Expander. Work smarter, not harder, with Text Expander. Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. With just a few keystrokes, Text Expander keeps you consistent, accurate, and working efficiently. Speed through emails, expand forms with fill-in-the-blank fields using a quick abbreviation. Use Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. Get your message right every time by expanding content that corrects your spelling and keeps your language consistent with a few keystrokes. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. All right. We are back with Dr. Sherry Walling talking about secondhand trauma, compassion fatigue, uh, vicarious trauma. It's got a lot of names for a similar set of things. One sign that I see again and again that I want to spend some time talking about is this numbing or realizing that you're unable to empathize with your clients or with what's going on around you. And when I read that as a sign, it hit me so hard because I see it again and again where or I hear it from lawyers where personal injury, criminal defense, even family lawyers, estate planning lawyers, where they're interacting with people and they're like, oh, pff, I can take 100 of these cases a day. It's totally fine. It doesn't affect me. And I'm not so sure that that's true or if it is true is that a bad thing? Yeah, numbing takes a lot of forms. It's this turning down of our emotional reaction. And 
often that is shifted into an intellectualization or a kind of hyper-focus on our thinking self. And that's super adaptive. Most of us who go through our lives and do a lot of education and have these very professional jobs, like we've learned to do that. We've learned to take our feelings and put them into our brains. And so I think the sense of confidence of, oh, I'm using my brain. I can get through this, get through it, get through it. And it is quite possible that we do habituate or get used to certain kinds of storylines. But I think when we're talking about numbing, we're thinking about how we're turning emotion down. And the problem with numbing is it's not usually targeted to one emotion in one situation. When we begin to practice numbing, it kind of seeps into the rest of our lives. And we sort of turn down our capacity for emotion in a way that can be problematic to our kids and our, our significant other and, and really to ourselves. So one other note about numbing is that often numbing gets uh, translated into uh, a couple martinis at the end of the day. It gets translated into things that we may be doing to kind of chemically shut down any kind of emotional arousal that's living in our bodies. So Numbing is anything that's turning down the volume on our feelings and that shows up in alcohol use or other substances that have that same effect. Is that the same thing as or how is that similar to dissociation? Dissociation is, I think we could consider it an advanced set of numbing skills. (laughs) It's kind of the edge of numbing where there really become fragments or fragmentation within the brain and the body happens such that we feel like we're leaving our bodies, like our cognitive brain and our feeling capacity separate from our physical sensation or separate from our bodies. So we'll call that high level advanced numbing. Again, there's a little more nuance there, but for the purposes of this conversation. Got it. One of the other things that I'm I'm wondering if this is a sign that someone may be experiencing secondhand trauma is that feeling of never being able to do enough. And I see this sometimes in people telling me that they're, for instance, one one person that I had a conversation with, a new lab member, she said that she was working until midnight on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, Christmas Day, just because mm-hmm. she had files, she had things to do, people had needs, they they wanted her help, and she just could not shut it off. She could not let go of their cases. Yeah, I could see that kind of behavior fitting in to that sense of intrusive thoughts. I'm I'm thinking about this all the time. I'm thinking about these people. I'm thinking about their stories. And it just shows up on the screen of my mind all the time, constantly. And so one strategy to alleviate that is, oh, well, I'll do something about it. I'll go file that. I'll worry about that. I'll write that out. And it's a sense in which you're responding to the thoughts with work, which feels a very reasonable action, but it's not really addressing the fact that you can't think about anything else. It's not addressing the fact that these reminders and stories are so intrusive into your brain that there's no other diversion. Yeah. Ooh. All right. Let's get a little bit of hope. Let's see <laughs> what people can do about this. If some of this is resonating with you, 
Dr. Sherry, what, is, what, is, what do we do? Yeah. I, and I first, again, just want to remind folks that this is a very common experience among helpers. And in some ways, it's the shadow side of one of our best abilities, which is to be empathetic. It is to care about people. It is to really listen to their stories and let ourselves be affected, right? Like that's what makes some of us amazing at our work. So we want to be careful with this skill. We don't want to villainize it or say that empathy is um bad or going to hurt us. But at the same time, we have to really take care of ourselves. And I, again, I feel like that's a very overused phrase, self-care, take care. But the fact is that we can get saturated in trauma. And one of the things that I think about is how we're kind of regularly squeezing out the sponge. We have ways of emptying ourselves out of all of the traumatic stories that we carry and creating space or capacity to get filled up again. And then we empty out and then we let it get filled up and then we empty out. So one of the superpowers of people who are continue to be empathetic, but stay in these helping professions for a very long time is that they are good at noticing when they're beginning to reach their limit, when the bucket is getting full and it's time for a different kind of action. So for you, that may be some combination of these symptoms. Maybe you stop sleeping well. Maybe you feel more distracted. Maybe you find yourself putting in those long hours. Like you have to know yourself and what your early telltale signs are that you're beginning to get trauma saturated. And when that happens to understand for you, what are those emptying actions? What are the things that help to clear the slate? Mm, yeah. So basically, what are your hobbies? What are the things that you like to do? Who can you turn to? Do you have a therapist? Do you have a trusted advisor kind of thing? Absolutely. I, I, I think if you are in the context of your particular work, experiencing a lot of traumatic stories, I really, really would highly recommend that you have a therapist. Like that is your place to dump all that stuff with someone that you don't have to take care of and you don't have any obligation to. You just get to dump your bucket and go about your life. So really, really helpful if you are bumping up against a lot of trauma. I think obviously anything that's helping you in your body move around some of those stories. So this is where those basic self-care things like really good sleep, drinking a lot of water, great nutrition, and of course, movement. Those are not just the things that your kindergartner teacher told you to do to keep yourself healthy. They are actually things that help to move through some of that cellular energy so that you can alleviate those places of stress that can build up and create problems. So those consistent physical self-care practices are extraordinarily helpful in preventing um, you from getting a point where you're saturated. I was hoping we would get to talk about the movement piece because I know that this is something that both you and I feel passionately about is incorporating the body, bringing that on board, helping the body release the things that it is carrying. And we in our personal lives have talked a bit about play and how mm. adding some sort of fun creativity, some free movement 
can help with that because I think we spend so much of our life in a very controlled position, whether it's behind a computer at a desk or just generally in life, we're as adults, we're not very free moving people. So what is your take on how people can start with that or or what are some things people should do? I think people who have really intense hobbies do well. And play is, of course, another word for having something that you love, that you give yourself to, and you make a priority in your life. There are so many advantages to this from a mental health perspective. But I think some quick ones, of course, the movement piece. But another one is that because our minds are so busy with our work, if we can engage in an activity that requires us to think about and focus on something else, we're giving the systems within our brain, we're giving specific neurons a break from that particular story and the opportunity for our brains to immerse in something else. So for example, think about a rock climber, somebody who's really paying attention to where they're putting their feet and their hands and and they're completely attuned using both their body and their brain in an activity that brings joy and some level of satisfaction. That's kind of the magic sauce for a great hobby is it's absorbing. It requires you to pay attention. And that can be volleyball. I suppose it could be bowling. It can be high intensity baking, I guess. For me, it's I love to play in the circus arts. So I do flying trapeze and aerial fabrics and talk about having to pay attention. I can't be thinking about my clients or my kids or whatever other worries are in my life. I have to be thinking about the thing that I'm doing and integrating my mind, my emotional life, my body, and my physics brain all in the same direction of staying safe and having fun. Yes, I love that. I was just telling some people yesterday that one of the things that I have started doing is free movement dance. And Mm -hmm. even just when I'm having a stressful day, I go to Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. That is my stress relieving jam in just a short period of time when I don't have a whole hour to go for a hike or or do something, I turn on Shake It Off and I literally just do that with whatever is happening for me. Just little things like that all the way to flying trapeze. I think it's the things that remind us that we are more than our work. And I know that lawyers work very hard to become excellent at the job that they're doing. And it can feel like it's the most important defining characteristic of who they are in their lives. But at the end of the day, we are more than our work, or we should at least strive to be more than our work so that we can be a diversified human who has some capacity to work through these heavy, heavy stories, not just in working harder or doing better or fighting better, but in bringing in creativity and bringing in story and bringing in movement and bringing in talking it through, but bringing in other human elements that can help us cope with the hard parts of the career that we've chosen. Yes. And speaking of the hard parts, one thing that has come up a lot in my conversations in lab lately is boundaries and how to set boundaries with your clients for yourself. And so I'm just wondering if you can speak on that for a few minutes of either things that you encourage people to do or a mindset shift to be able to set better boundaries. Yeah, there's a few things. And one 
bucket of things is in the ways that we communicate to our clients. So the way that we say, I am all here, totally focused on you for this segment of time, right? You may call me anytime between eight and five. We are clear about what we're saying yes to. So our clients know how to access us in ways that feel good to us. But it's hard for us to say no. A lot of us caring, empathetic types, we have trouble saying no. So what we want to do is frame the relationship with the clients in a way that we can say a full yes. So these are the hours. This is the mechanism. This email address, this phone number, this is the structure where you are going to get my full and undivided attention. If you email me on a Saturday, I'm doing other things. I may not be able to respond in a timely manner. I'm just setting up some of those boundaries and conversation from the beginning. So that's kind of one category of things of how we set boundaries is how we communicate that to our, the people that we're working with. I think a second category of things that's a little bit more in how we have our own boundaries in our minds is the, the rituals with which we end and begin our work. And so now that many of us are working from home, we don't have these nice, clean breaks from work time and home time, right? We're not leaving the house. We're not commuting, some of us. And so I think when we think about how we enter and exit, we need rituals. We need a song. We need a change of clothes, sort of Mr. Rogers style, coming in from the office, changing shoes, taking off the blazer, putting on a sweater, Even if you're working just down the hall from your bedroom, like putting on your work shirt and then changing and let that change in your clothing signify a change in who you are and what parts of you you're focusing on in a given time. So being clear in your own mind about I'm this other person now. I'm not the work person. I'm not the lawyer right now. I'm just Sherry. I'm just Kelly. Like I'm just doing my life. Yes. I think that changing clothes is a really cool trick that people can do, especially when you're working from home. It's actually something I do. Well, I'm very casual today, so I'm I'm not going to say that I change clothes every day. But typically, I will have my clothes that I wear during my workday. And then as soon as school pickup is done, as soon as I'm ready to make dinner, I will change into my home clothes. And that just is a little mental indication for me that it is time to relax, that everything is done, and I can just be present with my family. It's a context cue, an an external cue that tells you what parts of you you're going to emphasize. And if people are curious about this, my friend Todd Herman wrote a book called Alter Ego, which I don't know if you've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's a handy dandy guide to how to make these transitions between these different parts of us that demand different things from us. Yeah, it's really cool. That's a really cool methodology. Well, any other parting thoughts that you would like to share with anyone before we go into how they can reach out to you or how they could follow you, get in touch with you? I I want to really just hit this point again that because it starts to get hard is not a product of anything broken in you, right? It's not a consequence of you not being tough enough or smart enough or effective enough or efficient enough or anything like that, that when you do human-oriented work, at some point, probably at multiple points in your career, you will become saturated in a way where you just need some help 
clearing all of it out. And so if you are feeling bad or having a hard time at this point, like, I just hope that we can together try to eliminate a sense of shame around that and just make it really easy to get help and be in conversation and take the corrective action that will keep you in your chosen vocation for as long as you wish to be. Yes. Thank you for wrapping things up like that. That is one of our missions at Lawyerist is healthier lawyers, healthier law firms. And we mean that from a holistic perspective of who you are and also what you're doing. So thank you. Where can people find you? I live on the internet at sherrywalling.com. And then I also have a presence at Zen Founder, Z-E-N-F-O-U-N-D-R, which is also the name of my podcast and the consulting company that I run that helps high-performing people be amazing at mental health. Yes. Thank you again, Dr. Sherry Walling, author of The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. And thank you again for joining me and hope you have an awesome rest of your day, everybody. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 